Be making your way, if, if you will, to John chapter 5. John chapter number 5. This will be our last look into John the 5th chapter. We've looked six or seven times here. This will be our 42nd look at the person, life, and ministry of Christ. I was just sitting here uh, just before Miss Wanda, Miss Angie finished. I was thinking about all the preaching we heard this past week. We heard some of the best, didn't we? From the first message by Brother Mike Goodson on uh, the second mile. I want to be a second mile Christian. And then Wednesday night, <laughs> cross-eyed preaching. Have you ever heard such preaching in all your life? And every message in between. As a matter of fact, two of our preachers preached Wednesday morning. And they have been bragged on. And I want to brag on them. Did an excellent job preaching. Brother Lynn and Brother Ronnie, thank you for preaching. And uh, to these Chapman men, your brother knocked it out of the park. I was talking to Corey Presno yesterday morning. Good friend of mine out in North Carolina. And he's in the process of going through all the sermons. And he said, look, you need to tell Aaron that message and his passion for Christ. He said he could not deny his passion for Christ. And uh, so, but don't tell him we've bragged on him. He'll get the big head. And uh, Warren, you know about that, don't you? All right, okay. I tell you, God's done a work of grace in Kobe Pruitt's life. Look at there. He's up close to the front now these days. <laughs> But I've got a sneaky suspicion it's not the grace of God did that. I think it's, uh, I think it's this gal he's got his eye on. I saw that, and I looked over there and smiled, Jay. I, I thought, now that gal's got him right there. <laughs> Kobe, look at me just a second. It will get worse, son. It will get worse. David Barnett and I, we were talking a while back about our wives and how blessed we are. And I'm blessed. You hear me say that quite often. Everywhere I go in meetings, uh, every night I mention Amanda in some fashion. But uh, Brother David, he said, he was talking about how blessed he was. I told him how blessed we both are. He said, yeah, I'm blessed. He said, I want to tell you something. He said, now they know how to manipulate us though, don't they? And I said, yeah, they do. <clears throat> All right. It didn't hurt us to have a little fun. John chapter 5, as you find verse 30, please stand with us if you can, and you will. I'm interested in part 2 of the message we started two weeks ago on confirmations and condemnation pronounced by the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this is our 42nd look into the life of Christ. John 5, beginning in verse now, we'll be a little bit repetitive on the beginning, but we are going to close this chapter and we'll not be too exhaustive in doing so. John 5, verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. This is Christ speaking in this discourse about himself, these claims about himself. He says to these Jewish leaders that he's speaking to that are angry with him, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, 
And I know that, that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You send unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing. Now that burning light in John's life, that was his passion. He couldn't be quiet. It was his passion. He was driven to preach Christ. That shining was his intellect. You've heard me say this on at least two different occasions. John the Baptist was not caveman John that the Baptist church has made him out to be. He was doctrinally on point concerning Christ. Now, we've preached this over a year ago and may bring it up again. Matter of fact, I may preach on it this week in Oklahoma, the Lord willing. But he preached so many doctrinal matters regarding Jesus Christ and his person and work. And John was a burning and a shining light. He said, you were willing for a season. See, he indicts them there for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time. Isn't that amazing? They knew the scriptures, but they did not know the Father. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. You don't know him is what he's saying. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him you believe not. He said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you. He knows you today. And he knows me today. He knows. If you claim to be saved, he knows whether or not you are saved today. He knows if you have life from above. He knows that. He knows every one of us. He says in verse 42 to these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. What an indictment. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive, and ultimately will be the the Antichrist, right? If you reject truth, it's amazing what you will resort to and what you will embrace. Embrace truth. It's the truth that will set you free, that will make you free. It's the truth that will bring you to Christ. A man or a woman who rejects truth is vulnerable to all types of error. I am come in my Father's name, verse 43, and you receive me. Not if another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive Honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses. Now, we know that to be the law, right? In whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not the writings, his writings, excuse me, how shall you believe my words? Thank you for standing Confirmations and condemnation pronounced by the Lord Jesus Christ in these 18 verses that close out John chapter number 5. Just as a brief recap and right on into the remainder of the verses that we have not covered here in John chapter number 5. 
You'll remember the religious leadership of the Jews made charges against Christ. He healed an impotent man that had been impotent 38 years at the pool of Bethesda, but he did it on the Sabbath. And they were offended at him because he did it on the Sabbath. They had taken God's Sabbath and made it their Sabbath. They had placed rules, regulations about the Sabbath. They saw the man who had been healed carrying his bed. It was an offense to them. When they found out who had healed him, they knew who had healed him. When they got confirmation of that. They wanted to kill Christ because of it. And then, of course, he claimed that God was his father, thus making himself equal with God. They for sure wanted to kill him because of that. As a matter of fact, that's what they'll crucify him for. He claimed God as his father in the temple experience at the age of 12 when Joseph and Mary left him behind. We said even back then, when he said to Mary, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business. And that's what the Jews want to crucify him over. He was an offense to these religious leaders. He, did, uh, he never did contradict, never did he violate uh, the law given of God. But he never had any use for the oral traditions of man that was passed down. He always minded the law. He always fulfilled the law of God. But he had no time. Um, he had no time for man's traditions. As a matter of fact, he violated all of those. Their problem with him was he came interpreting Scripture rightly divided. And he showed that the heart of man... It's at the heart of man's problem. It's evil. It's wicked. Desperately wicked, Jeremiah would write, who can know it? But there is the religious leadership of the Jews. They made charges against our Lord. Really, you can group that from the healing of this impotent man in this chapter, verses 1 to 16. Verses 17 to 29 is a second division of this chapter. There are the declarations made by the Lord Jesus before this um, before this leadership of the Jews. You remember John often writes about the Jews. He uses the phrase, the Jews, speaking of the Jewish hierarchy, the religious leaders uh, throughout his gospel. In verses 17 and 18, as a matter of review, Jesus declared his equality with the Father and offended them. Again, now they want to kill him twice over. Uh, they wanted to kill him for healing the man on the Sabbath. They would have wanted to kill him if he had healed the the impotent man in the middle of the week. They're offended at him. But now they want to kill him even more so. Verses 19 to 29, Christ made claims about himself and did so with authority. He used those double verilies, those double emphases. You remember we, we pointed out how there are 25 times where Jesus said verily, verily. And they are all unique to John's writing. I've tried to point out some of the uniqueness of John's gospel. Verily, verily means of a truth, of a truth. Or listen, listen, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm saying. He's drawing us into truth when he uses these double verilies. Verily means truth or it means amen. Jesus declared, again, he declared his oneness or his unity with the Father, verses 17 through 23. You remember preceding this particular, or verses 19 to 23, excuse me, Prior to this section, you remember they, the Jews sought to kill him because in verse number 18, he said that God was his father and thus made himself equal with God. 
Of course, we've tried to point out for three different messages now that you cannot separate the Father from the Son, nor the Son from the Father. And though the Holy Spirit is not included in this passage, you cannot divorce God the Father from God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There's no jealousy. There's no rivalry. What one does, they all three do. Even in the matter of salvation, they all three are participants in this matter of salvation, though Christ is the one that died for our sins. The Holy Spirit brings us to the Son of God. The Son of God saves us. The Father accepts us in the beloved. And we are grateful for the work of the Trinity, the divine unity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse number 19, the Father and the Son work together. Verse number 20, Jesus pointed out the Father loves the Son. Verse number 21, the Father and the Son alike raise the spiritually dead who come to Christ. Verse number 22 of this chapter, the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. Verse number 23, the Father and the Son are both to be honored. We do not bow today as many people on planet earth to some generic idea of a God that somehow designed all of this and left us to ourselves. We don't do that at all. We must come to the Father through the Son. We worship the Father through the Son. And that is taught in the volume of the book. Verse number 24, let's read verse number 24. We've mentioned it each time that we've preached from this chapter. Jesus declares himself to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. Verse 24, you don't want to miss this verse. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming. And or excuse, I'm in 25, verse number 24, verily, verily. I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He is the Son of God. He is our Savior. Verses 25 to 29, Jesus declared resurrection true. He said a resurrection day is coming for the lost, and there's a resurrection day coming for the saved. There's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Our loved ones who have died and are now in the presence of Christ, their bodies uh, are going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye one day. We'll be given a glorified body. There's the confirmation of Christ's person given in verses 30 to 37. This is where we've been, where we were our last message. These are testimonies regarding Christ's claims, regarding his person. Of course, the general theme of verse 30 through 47 is the rejection. Christ is dealing with the rejection of these Jewish leaders. They've rejected him. Uh, They willfully ignore a mountain of evidence that Christ is who he claims to be. Oftentimes, when someone's made a profession of faith or someone comes to me under conviction uh, about their need, the need of their soul, uh, I always ask the question, Do you believe that Jesus Christ is who the Word of God says him to be, declares him to be? I've never heard anyone say no. Uh, You must believe that he is the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah. You must believe that he is sin of the Father to die for the sins of the world. He is the one who saves. It's not the God of the wind or the God of the forest. Uh, He is the God of heaven. That does the saving. He robed himself in flesh and lived a sinful, sinless life. Excuse me, sinless life. And took that body to the cruel cross of Calvary to die for our sins. The rejection of Christ was inexcusable. So it is with every man, woman, boy, and girl who rejects Christ from all nations. It is inexcusable. There's enough evidence 
Matter of fact, there's been enough gospel preached in this church in all the years of its existence to save the world. I heard the gospel as a boy, didn't recognize what it was. But, uh, but dear heart, if you've heard the gospel, you've had enough evidence to be saved and to respond to Christ. The rejection of Christ is inexcusable. There's an abundance of testimony offered. Now, let me just remind you, verse number 31, of the Old Testament principle he rehearses here. He says in verse number 31, as he begins offering these testimonies to his person, to his deity, to his godness. In verse 31, he said, if I bear witness of myself, in other words, if I come on the scene and I speak and that's all you hear, that's what he's saying in essence. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Another word for that word true is valid. He said, if I come and only I say what I say, it's not valid. You don't have to believe me. And then he's going to offer more testimony. Of course, we won't go back into it. It's picked up. The principle is picked up in the Gospels and in the Epistles. But uh, Deuteronomy 19.15, the Jewish people knew exactly what he was referring to. That verse says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, or for any sin, and any sin that he sinned. Then he said, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. He said, you know the principle that, our, uh, that, uh, that the Father has given to Israel. One man cannot make a claim and that be validated. There must be two witnesses, or three witnesses. He's going to offer more than three, isn't he? There is the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his own works, the witness of God the Father, the witness of the Scriptures, and even the witness of Moses. He presents several witnesses to validate, to validate who he is. The evidence is overwhelming, dear heart. Their rejection of Christ was inexcusable. Their rejection of Christ was intentional. They rejected him of their own volition. They saw the evidence and yet rejected Christ. Wouldn't it be awful to have a Bible and die and go to hell? Wouldn't it be awful to actually own a Bible and never read it? Wouldn't it be awful to have a Bible and read it and couldn't see Jesus in it? Wouldn't it be awful to be a church member and die and go to hell and have the gospel preached to you on a regular basis? Wouldn't it be a gospel in a nutshell presented to you or the gospel preached so elaborately as we heard it last Sunday night in our church? It would be awful to have a Bible and die and go to hell. The majority of these religious leaders died and went to hell. And we know some of them were saved. We know that according to the book of Acts. We know that some of the chief priests, some of the scribes would be saved, but the majority of them died and went to hell rejecting Christ. It was intentional. Look at verse number 40. He said, and ye will not come to me. That word ye in our King James is the plural for you all. It's not just you, but you all, ye. All y'all, he said, y'all will not come to me that y'all, that you all might have life. He said, you will not come to me. They refused the, the facts. They deliberately rejected the Son of God. I was thinking about this early this morning in my study. And I couldn't help but think of Psalm 14, 1, which says, uh, which begins by saying, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Do you know in essence what that phrase is saying, the fool? has said, no God for me. No God. I'll not bow to anyone that will lay lordship over me. I'll make my own rules. I'll do my own thing. I'll live my own life. Well, Oliver B. Green used to say, that's all right, pretty good, as long as you have breath in your lungs. 
But what you need to do is make a heaven to go to after you leave this walk of life because judgment is to follow. Listen to Psalm 14, verse number 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. A man is a fool to ignore God. A man is a fool to ignore the claims of Christ. A man is a fool to look beyond the cross of Calvary where Christ died for the sins of the world. A man is a fool to live as though there is no God, to believe there are no consequences to sin. A man's a fool to to live as though death does not come to them and there is no judgment that will follow death. A man is a fool. These men were fools. There they are in the presence of the Son of God and reject him. The rejection of Christ was very revealing. I'll only run through these. They loved self more than they loved Christ. He indicted them of that. Verse 42, they were filled with pride. That's what takes a man to hell, his own pride. He will not bow to Christ. They love darkness rather than light. Jesus explained why that happens, how that happens. In John chapter 3, in speaking to Nicodemus, he said they do that because their deeds are evil. Their deeds are evil. You remember we looked at, and I'll only mention, but... uh, These witnesses that Christ calls, verse 32 to 35, let's just read them. And then we're going to say very little about them. There's the witness of John the Baptist, 32 through 35. There's another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. In other words, you went to see him. You sent unto him, and he bare witness of the truth. He preached truth. That's what he's saying. And I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He said he was a burning and a shining light. He said you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Only for a season. Entertain him for a season. To listen to him for a season. John came on the scene. He came on the scene uh, preaching. He preached repentance. He preached judgment. He preached the Lord Jesus and his person and word. He came on the scene baptizing. John's baptism was an outward sign of inward repentance. John baptized converts, and then John baptized the Christ. I'm not uh, on Facebook a lot, but I do get on it. And I see some of you on there. I see prayer requests often. I saw a children's book. I would guess some of you saw it too. A children's book where it showed Jesus at the little drawing, Jesus at his baptism. And the caption was that Jesus was baptized for his sins That is blasphemy, friend. He had no sins. He was not baptized for his sins. He had no sins. Matter of fact, the only sin he ever had was my sins. He had no sins. He had no sins of the mind. He had no sins of the flesh. He had no sins of the spirit. He had no sins in action nor in attitude. He had no sins. He was baptized. He submitted to the baptism to show his own baptism of suffering on the cross. And also to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he told John. John came on the scene preparing the way for Christ. He was Christ's forerunner. Luke 3, verse number 4 says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Jesus put John the Baptist before these Jewish leaders. He said, you can deny my claims if you want to, but he said, witness number two, I summon uh, in our open-air court today is John the baptizer. 
the preacher from the wilderness, um, the rugged man of the country. He said, you went out and heard him. He preached the truth. He said, you'll have to deny me and you'll have to deny him. Look at verse number 36. Here's another witness he summons. It's a witness of his own works that he's done. They're keenly aware of what uh, the word is throughout the region as to Christ and his fame, his popularity for what he's done for hurting people. Look at verse number 36. He said, but I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Think about the works that we've preached and we've shared with one another at Charity Baptist Church this last year. There was the work of when he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cain of Galilee. They know well what he has done there. In that same chapter, John chapter number 2, he, with divine authority, he braided a, a whip of cords and, and he overturned the money changers' tables and he, he cleansed the temple. Uh, how dare one do such as that? As a matter of fact, it's a wonder. It's a miracle. Uh, yea, a divine miracle that men didn't try to put their hands on him and kill him. Uh, Annas and Caiaphas got filthy rich off what would take place around Passover and certain times of the year where they would sell doves and, and, uh, and sheep and the, the such like. But then there's the work that he did in Samaria. How dare he? The Jews hated the Samaritans. And there he goes to Jacob's well, sets on the well until noon, saves a lady there. She goes back and tells the men of the city. They come back and meet him. He stays another at least two days and saves a bunch of them. Now, I want you to listen to me. A lot of times we hear about revival and, and big multitudes of people being converted. I want to tell you something. If there's a multitude of people being converted, a whole community will be changed. You mark that down. Who Christ saves, he changes them, and they go back and live a changed life in their homes, their factories, and the communities in which they live. These revivals that are being claimed and nobody else comes to Sunday school, nobody else comes to preaching. Nobody else joins a church anywhere. That may be a revival of man, but it's not a revival of God. Then he healed the nobleman's son in John chapter number 4. Then he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law after a Sabbath service in the synagogue. And then that night at Simon's front door, he healed multitudes as they lined up throughout the evening. He calls the four. You remember after they'd toiled all night and had taken nothing, he caused the four uh, to haul in such a harvest of fish. They had to, all four of them in their hands, they had to, they had to get together to, to, to bring in one net full of fish. In Luke chapter number 5, he'd healed a leprous man. And then after that, he healed a palsied man born of four. And then here in John chapter number 5, he healed an impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. His works give testimony to the work of the gospel. His works offer testimony that he is who the Father has sent, that he is the Lord Jesus. And then there's the witness of God the Father. Verse number 37 and 38, the Bible says, And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. In the Gospels, we find Jesus over and again bringing before us the Father. 
the Father's will and his accomplishing of that will. You remember when John baptized Jesus. You remember what John witnessed to and what we witnessed of that baptism in the Scriptures. He baptized the Son of God in the Jordan River. The Father gave witness from heaven. He spoke and John heard him audibly. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's the well-pleasing Son. And then the Holy Spirit, he saw him visibly. He saw the Holy Spirit as he descended upon Christ from heaven and remained upon him. Listen to John 1, verses 32 to 34. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. He said, and I knew him not, though he was my cousin. I didn't know he was Messiah. I didn't know he was the Lamb of God. Listen to what he said. He said, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water... The same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. He said, There's that witness. The Jewish leaders, they did not want to hear Christ's message. They were smug and complacent toward Christ. They rejected him. They were arrogant in their right and their rituals. They were prideful in their feast and their fast. They were self-righteous in their sacrifices and their observance of the Sabbath. They were rigid in their traditions and their giving of tithes and alms. They didn't believe the Bible, and so therefore they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls their hand on this and indicts them. He charged the Jewish leaders with rejecting the Father, rejecting the Word, and thus rejecting Him, verses 37 and 38. Look with me at verse number 39. He calls the witness of the Scriptures to account. Verse number 39, he said, search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. He said, they are they which testify of me. He told them to search the Scriptures. They were known to do that on a regular basis. And and, uh, they would search the Scriptures and memorize the letters in each word. And uh, memorize the, the words, how many words per verse or that type of a thing. But they did not find Christ in the scriptures when he tells them to search the scriptures. That word search comes from a word that we would use to speak of a hound on a track, on a scent. He said, you go back through the scriptures. You read them again and read them the proper way. Retrace the scriptures. Reread them. Pick up on the proper scent of the scriptures. Follow the trail. And if you'll follow it out rightly, Christ will be found. He's telling them to take the whole of the Old Testament canon, the 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, and he says, go through them and you will find me there. Now, no doubt he is saying, in essence, you will find me to be the seed of the woman in the book of Genesis. You will find me to be the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. You will find me to be the atonement in the book of Leviticus. You will find me to be holiness personified. You'll find that I am the law of approach to the Father in the book of Leviticus. You'll find me to be the brazen serpent in the book of Numbers. And I am the true prophet readying a people for the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. You'll find me to be the captain of the host of the Lord in the book of Joshua. And I am the true deliverer of the soul in the book of Judges. He is telling them, in essence, you will find me to be the kinsman redeemer the heavenly Boaz, who is wealthy, worthy, and willing to redeem. You'll find me, though Israel cried to have a king like the other nations, 
I was their king. They turned their back on me. You'll find me to be a personal king in 2 Samuel as I am David's king. You'll find me to be king of kings. That's capital K in the first king and lower K in the second kings of that title. King of kings, even when the kingdom divided in first and second kings. He said, in the recording of the Chronicles, you'll find me to be Lord of lords. You'll find in Ezra, me to be Lord of heaven and earth. You'll find that I'm the master builder in the book of Nehemiah. I'm the unseen worker in the book of Esther, taking care of my people and, uh, and offering condemnation and judgment against those who would lift their hands against them. You'll find me to be the daysman in the book of Job, the mediator, the one that can take the hand of the Father and unite it with the hand of the needy individual. You'll find me to be the shield and the buckler, the high tower and the rock in the Psalms, and the wisdom of God in Proverbs, the poor wise man who delivered the city and yet he was forgotten, despised, and rejected in the end. You'll find him to be the one altogether lovely in the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. The suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. The balm of Gilead that sets the captive free in Jeremiah. The weeping prophet in Lamentations. He's the shepherd of Israel guiding their steps in the book of Ezekiel. He's the ancient of days in Daniel, older than time itself. He's the Lord God of hosts in the book of Hosea. The hope of his people in the book of Joel. He's the God of hosts in the book of Amos. The Lord of the kingdom in Obadiah. He's the risen prophet standing again in the book of Jonah. He's the ruler in Israel in Micah. He's the stronghold and the bringer of good tidings in the book of Nahum. He's the God who justifies by faith, by simple faith. He's the God who justifies by faith, and we're to walk in that faith in the book of Habakkuk. He's the Lord in Israel's midst in Zephaniah. In Haggai, he's the desire of all nations. In Zechariah, he's the branch. He's the corner. He's the nail. He's the fountain. He's the king of all the earth. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings, and so much more. He said, go back and read it again, fellas. All you see is thou shalt and thou shalt not. He said, go back and read it again, fellas. You miss me. You miss the theme of it all. He said, it's all about me, fellas. I like what somebody said in the Bible conference this week. The Bible is a hymn book. It is about Jesus Christ. You remove Jesus Christ from this book, and you'll remove the lofty theme of this book. I heard Elwood Seamstreet, pastors in Clover, South Carolina, been pastoring for over 50 years same church out there. I heard him. He was preaching from Revelation up in Ripley back. Uh, it's probably been 20 years ago. He said it was his third trip through the book of Revelation. He said, now, I'm not going through it this time. Focused upon all the plagues and the vows. And he said, I'm not, not going through it. The timeline's not my focus this time. He said, I have prayed that the Lord will show me himself in Revelation. He said, I do declare this is my richest trip through the book of Revelation. If you can read the Bible and not find Christ, you have missed the theme of the Bible. Can I get a witness? It's all about him. Lastly, verse 37 to 47. I'm going to read these verses somewhat slowly. And in this you'll find, and I'll be brief with this, but you'll find the condemnation, the condemnation of these Jewish leaders. He's going to sum it up. He's going to indict them. 
when, when the Spirit of God gave us the Bible, he gave it to us with polysyndetans. Polysyndetans. Polysyndetans are your commas, your semicolons, your colons, your question mark. It's your conjunctive words. It's the wherefores and the therefores and the ands and the buts. And it was intended in Greek literature. It was intended so that you would read a phrase and when you come to a punctuation or you come to a conjunctive word, you would pause and contemplate what has been stated. Years ago, and I try to read my Bible through regularly, but years ago, especially when I was working and trying to pastor too, and trying to prepare three and four times a week for Sunday school and worship services. I'll be honest with you. I would read to get through. Not knowing what I had read. Let me encourage you. If it takes you three years to get through your Bible. Or four years. Read it slowly. Think upon what you read. Meditate upon it. That means to do what the cow did this morning. As he picks up from the pasture, she picks up from the pasture, and then she'll go to the shade and she'll to not be so ugly in it, she'll regurgitate it. And what she picked up this morning, she'll chew it all over again. You do you'll do yourself a favor if on Monday, tomorrow morning, you get up and read the twenty third Psalm. Think through it. Be reminded of it through the day. Take this chapter. We've given it five or six divisions. Just take a division of chapter five. Take a month. Take, take one division this week. Read it every morning. Think it through. He indicts these religious leaders. Watch this, 37 and following. Watch what he says to them. He's, he's given witness. He's made claims. He's indicted them. Verse 37, and the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the Scripture. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name. And you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another? And seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses. In whom you trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, 
how shall you believe my words? Just thinking this over again this morning, uh, pretty early. Just thinking this over again, I thought about the two verses in John chapter 8. No doubt there probably were some of the same religious Jewish leaders in this crowd. Listen to what he said. Listen to what he said in John 8 to them, verse 21 and 24. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. John 8, 24. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. I've thought about often through the years, life's greatest tragedy. Some of us will remember when it come across the news outlets, October the 25th, 1994. A young mother by the name of Susan Smith uh, put on a show in front of national media. We later would find out she strapped her two sons in their car seats, put her car in neutral at a boat landing, and let the car take those two boys to their watery grave. And she did it for a man. Having two small children was going to be a hindrance to her relationship with a man. She drowned her two sons for a man who ultimately didn't even care anything about her. And you heard what I heard. All the news reporters would say, what a tragedy. And it was. A few months later, our country was rocked again. It was April the 19th, 1995, when the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was bombed. It was a loss of innocent life again. And they tagged it. What a tragedy. And I won't tell you what life's greatest tragedy is. It is for a man to die in his sins. Life's greatest tragedy is for a woman to die in her sins. Life's greatest tragedy is for a young person who's come to a place of accountability in their lives before God to turn stiff-necked and reject Christ and die in their sins. Went back in some old notes and read a story Uh, This week, it's an old legend that tells of a merchant in Baghdad who one day sent his servant down to the market. He had time to get there and should not have returned back to um, the merchant. The servant came back. He was pale and trembling, shaking. He said to his master, he said, down at the marketplace, I was just jostled by a woman in the crowd, and when I turned around, I saw it was Lady Death that jostled me. His voice trembling, he said, she looked at me and made a threatening gesture. He said, Master, please lend me your horse, for I must hasten away to avoid her. I will ride to Samara, and there will I hide, and death will not find me. Of course, the merchant lent him his horse, and the servant galloped away in great haste. Later that day, the merchant himself went into the market, 
to take care of the business the servant did not take care of. He saw death standing in the crowd. The merchant went over to her and asked, Why did you frighten my servant this morning? And why did you make a threatening gesture? To which death replied, That was not a threatening gesture. It was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him in Samara this evening. The Bible still says, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Death does well what death does. Donald, I said to Melissa during the fellowship song, your daddy left this walk of life on February the 12th this year. You had his homegoing service, and he was honored, and Jesus Christ was honored in that, February the 14th of this year. Last year on February the 12th, we said goodbye to the only daddy I've ever known. That was Harry Swords, my stepdad. We had his funeral right here, February the 14th a year ago. Death came calling my stepfather, her father, and the only father I've really ever known at an appointed time. Death came calling Joe Talbot, February the 12th, 2024. I want to tell you something. You don't have to be old to die. You ain't got to be sick to die. You don't have to be in a car wreck to die. I've held funerals for babies. I've held funerals for men up near 100 years of age. I've held funerals for single men and married men. Young fathers, middle-aged fathers, and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. It is appointed unto man wants to die. 100% of the population is going to die. And this book tells us that just as sure as death comes, Judgment is to follow. We will stand before God. And it isn't going to matter if I could wear a new suit or patch an old one up. It won't matter that I drive a GMC or you drive a Ford pickup. It won't matter that your bank account looked bigger than mine or mine was bigger than yours. When you stand before God, he's looking for one thing. Just like he did one long night in Egypt, he's looking for blood. Son, he's looking for blood. He's looking for the blood of the lamb. And if he sees the blood, he will pass over you. Judgment will not fall at your feet. If you don't know it, if you don't know it, now's the time. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Would you stand, please? Miss Angie, if you'll come to the piano, please, ma'am.